tell God all of my troubles when I get home. Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, American Africans, Early Black Institutions in the U.S. You choose some identities while others are thrust upon you. It seems to be an accident of birth whether you come into the world as male or female, black or white, American or Canadian. But you can choose your religion, your sports team, your political party. Actually, we live in a day and age when identity is more subject to self-definition than ever before. Even gender, which until recently was assumed to be given by nature, is now often acknowledged as a matter of social construction with some of us identifying in terms of previously unrecognized genders or no gender at all. We also live in a time when people are increasingly aware of having more than one identity at a time. The word intersectionality, introduced in the 1980s by the black feminist legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw, has become widely used in the current century for this phenomenon, for the way your experiences as, say, a black woman will differ from those of a black man or a white woman. The concept of intersectionality might have seemed familiar to African Americans of the late 18th and early 19th centuries, even when not thinking about gender. They often saw themselves as Africans and as Americans, and explored ways to embrace both of these identities while confronting a society that was not going to allow them much personal discretion in defining those identities. Here's a story that illustrates the dilemma. A group of black Methodists, whose leaders were Richard Allen and his friend Absalom Jones, attended services at St. George's Church in Philadelphia. The white parishioners had segregated the church space, putting the black worshippers up in a separate balcony. When a group of black Methodists instead knelt on the main floor of the church, the whites tried to pull them away. Absalom Jones pleaded that they should at least wait until the prayer was ended, but to no avail. The black Methodists had had enough. They walked out in disgust, never to return. Richard Allen set up his own church, known as Mother Bethel, and went on to become the nation's first black bishop as the head of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the first fully independent black denomination in the African diaspora. His importance in the community was later recognized by the fiery abolitionist David Walker, who stated that Allen had done more in a spiritual sense for his ignorant and wretched brethren than any other man of color has since the world began. Absalom Jones, meanwhile, set up an Episcopalian church and became the first black priest ordained by that denomination. As this sequence of events illustrates, free blacks in this period often sought to join in the wider American society and its institutions, but also found it desirable, and indeed necessary, to found their own institutions. We might now call these safe spaces, another 21st century phrase that perfectly captures an 18th and 19th century reality. Reflecting on the need for such spaces, The poet and abolitionist author Sarah Fortin wrote in a letter to her fellow abolitionist, Angelina Grimke, We never travel far from home and seldom go to public places unless quite sure that admission is free to all. Yet her own father, James Fortin, who was another Philadelphia community leader and colleague of Bishop Richard Allen, had made quite literally heroic efforts to embrace his identity as a member of wider American society. He signed up to fight for the American Revolution at the tender age of 15, and when captured by the British, refused to join them, proclaiming, I am here a prisoner for the liberties of my country, and never, never shall prove a traitor to her interests. 
Many other black Americans saw this conflict differently. A white minister wrote in his diary that nearly the whole black population of Philadelphia was hoping for British victory, thanks to a 1775 proclamation that offered freedom to Africans who helped to put down the revolution. So James Fortin was unusual in his enthusiasm for the young American nation. Yet even he would conclude later in life that America would never offer a true home to those of African descent, saying, they will never become a people until they come out from amongst the white people. Fortin perfectly represents the story we want to tell in this episode. We'll see black Americans trying to persuade white Americans to accept them while simultaneously founding their own churches and other organizations, and ultimately wondering whether the project of being both African and American is a lost cause. The story will largely unfold in the northern states, for the obvious reason that it was in these parts of America that black people had the most opportunity to organize and to publish their ideas in writing. There were some parallel developments in southern states, such as the African Baptist Church in Savannah, Georgia, but it's telling that Richard Allen himself once turned down an opportunity to travel to the Deep South after being warned it would not be safe for him to associate with other blacks there, or even to sleep anywhere other than in his carriage. The main centers of black activism and community building were Philadelphia, thanks to Allen, Jones, and Fortin, and also Boston. The tellingly named African Society, formed in Boston in 1796, gives us a window into the ideas and concerns of black Bostonians at the turn of the 19th century. A pamphlet published by this society in 1808, entitled The Sons of Africans, an Essay on Freedom, praises Massachusetts and the town of Salem in particular, as a haven for free blacks at this time. The authors argue that freedom ought to be the birthright of all Africans in America, or rather of all humans everywhere on the globe. In part, this is on religious grounds. They mention that in the Bible, slavery is strongly associated with sin, identifying Pharaoh and his oppression of Moses and his people as a paradigm case of slaveholding. They also point out hypocrisy of the kind that Lemuel Haynes deplored in Liberty Further Extended, as we discussed in episode 34. Taking for granted that the cause of American freedom was a just one, they ask, if desirable to America under such circumstances, why not to any or all the nations of the earth? Perhaps most philosophically interesting, though, is their point that slavery is only one particularly brutal form of bondage. One may also be oppressed by unhappy marriage, vicious neighbors, or even one's own personal moral failings. In every case, bondage is an evil and something no one would desire. How then can it be right to inflict it on other humans? Anticipating the objection that Africans, being inferior, need masters to guide them, they admit that some humans do need the guidance of others. This is true of the insane, the simple-minded, and children. But no one would infer from this that we should enslave and brutalize these groups. Instead, it is obvious that they should be the objects of our benevolence. Another important institution founded in Boston around this time and one that would go on to exercise immense influence among African Americans over the following generations was the Masonic Lodge, led by a man named Prince Hall. The Masons were a secret society, whose initiates could identify one another through coded gestures and words. They were very successful at this point in American history, counting among their number such figures as George Washington and Benjamin Franklin. White Masons excluded blacks from their meetings, and Prince Hall was not even able to win recognition of his lodge from his American brethren. It was instead chartered with the support of the British Masons in 1787. Under Hall's leadership, the Boston Lodge became a forum for social work, political pressure, and outspoken protest. 
many other luminaries of 19th century Africana thought, such as David Walker, Henry Highland Garnett, Martin Delaney, and W.E.B. Du Bois, were Masons, as by the way were Richard Allen and Absalom Jones down in Philadelphia. Masonic ideology is fused with the concerns of the Black community in two speeches, or charges, delivered at the Lodge by Prince Hall and published in 1792 and 1797, and also prior to those in a 1789 sermon given at the Lodge by none other than John Marant. When last we saw Marant, back in episode 32, he was preaching to the Black people of Nova Scotia on behalf of the Methodists associated with the Countess of Huntingdon. He left Nova Scotia in 1787 and moved to Boston. From his 1789 sermon and Hall's speeches, we can come to understand some of the attraction of masonry for early Black Americans. Marant and Hall would have been very glad to see that we began this podcast series by looking at ancient Egypt and Ethiopia, because they looked back to these civilizations as their forerunners. Masonic lore included Egyptian elements, and had at its center the temple built by King Solomon, giving Prince Hall a chance to allude to the Queen of Sheba in his second speech. Marant went so far as to make the following claim about the location of the Garden of Eden. Paradise did, as it were, border upon Egypt, which is the principal part of the African Ethiopia. Capitalizing on this broad understanding of the word Ethiopia, which is by now familiar to us, Prince Hall referred in both his speeches to the biblical line, Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hands unto God. Found in Psalm 68, verse 31, this verse would prove to be a favorite of black thinkers in the century to come. In another connection to recent episodes, when Hall invokes this aspirational phrase in his 1997 charge, he connects it to the glory of the Haitian Revolution. Marant and Hall also valued the Masonic project as an instrument of racial uplift, as when Hall petitioned the Massachusetts government to support the education of black children. Yet, even as they were forced by the rejection of white Masons to strike out on their own and create what they called an African lodge, they continued to insist that the whole organization stood for an ethic of universal brotherhood. For Marant, this was indeed a main advantage of the Masonic society, which was, he said, a society founded upon such friendly and comprehensive principles that men of all nations and languages or sects of religion are and may be admitted and received as members. Likewise, Hall implored his listeners to show benevolence towards all, including non-Masons and even non-Christians. In Hall's two charges, the universalist moral code of the Masons is linked to the ideal of racial harmony. He reminded his listeners about the black soldiers who fought for America in the revolution marching shoulder to shoulder with white soldiers. On the other hand, he condemned post-revolutionary uprisings like that led by the white farmer Daniel Shays, which Hall offered to help put down with a militia of black Bostonians. For Hall, even slavery should be opposed with pious virtue, not with violence. We must be good subjects to the laws of the land in which we dwell, he wrote. However just uprising may be on the side of the oppressed, yet it doth not in the least, or rather ought not, abate that love and fellow feeling which we ought to have for our brother fellow men. In Philadelphia, a similar message could be heard from the pulpit of Richard Allen's church. He had plenty of opportunities to despair of acceptance by white America even, or rather especially, by his fellow Methodists. After the notorious exodus of the blacks from St. George's Church, white church leaders tried to stop Allen from operating autonomously. They sent white preachers to give sermons there against the black parishioners' will, and even forced Allen to raise money for buying the church he had built with his own hands in order to secure its independence. Yet, he spared no effort to show the white community that black folk 
could play a strong, positive role in Philadelphia. He, for one, was going to do his part to help it earn its nickname, the City of Brotherly Love. The most famous example came when he and Absalom Jones led an effort to nurse victims of a yellow fever epidemic. When a white publisher, Matthew Carey, praised their efforts but criticized other black residents of the city for engaging in theft and other misdeeds during the outbreak, Allen and Jones responded with a powerful statement of black solidarity. In their pamphlet describing the whole episode, called A Narrative of the Proceedings of the Black People During the Awful Late Calamity in Philadelphia, they refused to allow Carey to drive a wedge between the elite community leaders and poorer, more easily demonized African Americans. In fact, almost all of those who had committed crimes during the epidemic had been white, while humble black people had performed in exemplary fashion, risking their lives by tending to the sick. In one telling vignette, they tell how a sick man was ignored by callous white Philadelphians, got a sympathetic hearing, but no actual help, from a visiting foreigner, and was then finally aided by a poor black man who proudly refused to accept any reward. Jones and Allen appended to their narrative several short texts on the plight of black Americans in general. In an address to those who keep slaves and approve the practice, they asked white people to imagine how they would feel if they were enslaved, and demolished the argument that black people need to be enslaved because of their natural inferiority. If black people seem inferior, it is because they have been deprived of education and other forms of social integration and support. Will you, they asked, because you have reduced us to the unhappy condition our color is in, plead our incapacity for freedom? A further text spoke to people of color and reminded them that their moral failings could be used as an excuse for further oppression. Much depends upon us for the help of our color, more than many are aware. If we are lazy and idle, the enemies of freedom plead it as a cause why we ought not to be free and say we are better in a state of servitude and that giving us our liberty would be an injury to us. And by such conduct, we strengthen the bands of oppression and keep many in bondage who are more worthy than ourselves. This moralizing message was enthusiastically received by women involved in the black religious movement. Allen's wife, Sarah, known to all as Mother Allen, was a bulwark of the black community in Philadelphia, and Richard Allen, rather grudgingly it must be said, came to accept that religious leadership could be displayed by women too, not only men like himself. He did turn down the request of a woman named Dorothy Ripley to speak at his church, and at first also rebuffed the charismatic preacher Jerina Lee. But when Lee dared to interrupt a meeting and speak extemporaneously, Allen was so impressed that he gave in, and even supported her further activities as an itinerant spiritualist. Her autobiography, The Life and Religious Experience of Jerina Lee, is a valuable document for understanding the role of women in the early American black church. She speaks of her intense awareness of her own sinfulness, but also of the presence of a divine force within her, a living principle, an immortal spirit, which cannot die and must forever either enjoy the smiles of its creator or feel the pangs of ceaseless damnation. She felt compelled by this to challenge the restrictions placed on her because of her color and her gender, in order to preach the gospel and call others to the path of God. As she herself demanded, if a man may preach because the Savior died for him, why not the woman? seeing he died for her also. Jerina Lee, it seems safe to say, already knew all about intersectionality. Preachers like Allen and Lee spoke above all to their fellow African Americans, offering them inspiration, encouragement, and comfort. But Allen also wanted to send a message to white America. An eloquent example was his eulogy delivered on the occasion of George Washington's death in 1799. 
Notoriously, Washington owned slaves and made a concerted effort to apprehend and recover two of them who fled from his home at Mount Vernon. Showing the usual lack of empathy of slaveholders towards their human chattel, he complained that one of them, Ona Judge, had run away without the least provocation. Yet Allen did not hesitate to extol Washington as a role model of emancipation, because he arranged for his slaves to be manumitted upon his death, something Lemuel Haynes also celebrated, as we saw. It's possible that Allen even met the nation's first president, because one of the ways he made his living was as a chimney sweep, and he worked in this capacity at the Washington's home in Philadelphia. Screenwriters, take note. We have here the makings of a Mary Poppins sequel about American race relations. Allen's eulogy would make a fitting climax to such a film, as he stated on behalf of the black Philadelphia community, we participate in common with the feelings of a grateful people, and encourage that community to love the nation in imitation of Washington. White readers of the published sermon were presumably intended to take the point that they should imitate him too, by freeing their slaves. In word and in deed, Allen and his allies could hardly have done more to show that they were willing and able to be Americans. During the War of 1812, James Fortin and Absalom Jones raised a so-called Black Brigade to defend Philadelphia against possible attack. We've already spoken of the service they rendered during the Yellow Fever epidemic and seen how Black soldiers like Haynes and Fortin helped to free America from British rule. Richard Allen made the point as follows. This land, which we have watered with our tears and our blood, is now our mother country. But to write these words as he did late in life, Allen had to go through multiple changes of heart. His early optimism for integration with white America, as typified by his eulogy of Washington, was battered by the interference and hostility of the white church and by political setbacks. A petition organized by Allen and Jones was submitted to the U.S. Congress, asking that full citizenship be given to free blacks, but it was rejected by a vote of 84 to 1. On this occasion, a congressman from Georgia offered the most revealing seven-word summary of American racism you'll ever hear, we the people does not mean them. In the face of such animosity, black leaders began to wonder whether the roots of black community could ever thrive upon the inhospitable soil of the United States. The various figures we've been discussing in this episode started to support the project of emigration. Prince Hall, as early as 1787, thought this a splendid idea. That year, he joined 73 other petitioners in requesting that Massachusetts fund transport to Africa, arguing that it remained our native country, which warm climate is more natural and agreeable to us, and where we shall live among our equals and be more comfortable and happy than we can be in our present situation. Hall and other black leaders regularly encountered the problem that once you have chosen your identity, you need society as a whole to acknowledge that choice. For all their pious words about brotherhood, for all their efforts in the cause of national liberty, evidence showed time and again that their white compatriots would only ever see them as Africans, not as Americans. This same lesson resulted in the late pessimism of James Fortin. We saw him refusing to abandon the American cause when captured by the British, and he later optimistically wrote that the architects of the revolution adopted the glorious fabric of our liberties and declaring all men free, they did not particularize white and black because they never supposed it would be made a question whether we were men or not. Yet Fortin too came to support emigration to Africa, joining forces with Allen in an attempt to persuade the parishioners at Bethel to support the project. The two men were stunned when the congregation, as with a single voice, shouted down the proposal. As Fortin put it, there was not a soul that was in favor of going to Africa. Dutifully accepting direction from their own flock, Allen and Fortin wrote up a declaration that said in part, 
Whereas our ancestors, not of choice, were the first successful cultivators of the wilds of America, we, their descendants, feel ourselves entitled to participate in the blessings of her luxuriant soil, which their blood and sweat manured. But Allen would not erase thoughts of emigration. Later exploring the question of going to Haiti, the site of another revolution, one fought to destroy slavery rather than one that preserved it. The immigration question would be central for Black Americans in the early decades of the 19th century. Should those who were free from slavery remain in the country, building on the religious and institutional foundations laid by figures like Marant, Hall, Allen, Lee, and Jones? By committing themselves to universal benevolence and invoking God's hatred of oppression, they might inspire white Christian Americans to end slavery or shame them into doing so. To leave the country would mean abandoning those who were still in chains to their fate. Yet emigration schemes held out the prospect of building something new in the absence of white obstruction. Look at what Allen achieved in the white majority Philadelphia, and then imagine what he might have done in more favorable conditions. It's a story that is sure to keep you awake, as you might infer from the names of two of our main protagonists, Paul Coffey and Daniel Coker. That's next time on what should be a highly caffeinated installment of The History of Africana Philosophy. I'm gonna tell God all of my troubles when I get